So I got in, um, interested in real estate investing. You know, I'm, I'm actually, um, my background's in finance, and I, uh, so I have a pretty strong background, but more so in what's been traditional investing. And it's funny that we've been touting diversification for so long, and it's been like that mix of stocks and bonds. And I really felt like after all this time preaching to others that, you know, this should work for them, it wasn't even working for myself and thought that I really need to venture out. And, you know, real estate investing just, it, it definitely interested me. It wasn't something that I struggle with. It was, you know, something that... I don't know, I got excited about right away. It made sense to me. Um, and so it's more so of creating that team and you know, knowing how to go about it was my biggest challenge in figuring out. Because with um, traditional investing, you can figure out an ETF or a mutual fund. You do online research. This took a lot more effort. And um, I know that I can't do it solo. I need to, to come up with a, a good team and a good approach. So I found Jason, um, I was listening to not his podcast, but one that he spoke on. And um, it was just at that time, I was just trying to learn. I'm like, well, he sounded pretty smart. So I'm going to listen to his podcast. So, you know, I actually listened to his podcast well over a year. And then I would say, you know, I don't know, it was more so just thinking, I don't know, it just seemed like it was interesting, not necessarily something that would be right for me. And then all of a sudden, everything clicked and it was right for me to take the steps and really figure out what Jason's all about and, and the more of the program and to see if it worked for me. Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show with Jason Hartman. You're about to learn a new slant on investing, some exciting techniques, and fresh new approaches to the world's most historically proven asset class that will enable you to create more wealth and freedom than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine, self-made multimillionaire who's actually been there and done it. He's a successful investor, lender, developer, and entrepreneur who's owned properties in 11 states, had hundreds of tenants and been involved in thousands of real estate transactions. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to your financial independence day. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome to episode 1337-1337. Thanks for joining us today, listeners from 189 countries worldwide. It's great to have you. We have a two-part show today, and first, Adam and I are here to talk about some important things in the news, and then we've got our in-house economist, Thomas, who will be here with us to talk about some very economically wonky things after Adam and I chat. How's that? Economically wonky. What do you That's think, That's the official Adam? term, right? That's a very official, very official. <laughs> there's probably, a, you know, an economic wonky study going on, and uh, there's probably an indicator of wonkiness oh, I'm, indicator. I'm sure there's uh, many wonky economic <laughs> studies going on. <laughs> so uh, you've got a couple things you wanted to talk about. Do you want to start with the short-term rental ban? Absolutely. Starting right okay, in my hometown. So this is, yeah, this is Austin, Texas, where Adam lives, but uh, it's going on in other places around the country and really, I guess, around the world, too, uh, as we find a lot of people very upset about short-term rentals, about Airbnb, and, Not in you know, my they've got a case. I, I don't blame them. I don't blame them at all. When I lived in La Jolla, California, San Diego area for a while, 
I saw uh, signs in yards all over, you know, these are neighborhoods. They're not meant to be, you know, a bunch of short-term rentals, people in and out. People want to live there. They want to enjoy their very expensive homes and uh, not have a bunch of transients coming in and out every three days. I don't blame them. But what do you think? So you have cities like New York City who are suing Airbnb and those kind of companies trying to get them to, you know, reveal the addresses of the places, make sure they're licensed. And Austin has been doing that for a while. But in 2015, they actually created a rule saying, you know, you have to have a license if you're renting it out for less than 30 days, unless you live as a homeowner on site. You know, they're Mm -hmm. just kind of shutting people down and saying, you can't do that. You know, you got to get a license. We were going to restrict it. And then it went to court and Mm -hmm. the city lost. Surprise, surprise. And the city had a planned, oh, wow, I hadn't read this part. They planned to phase out full-time short-term rentals by 2022. So that the court said no-go, and it was because of property rights. Court said, you know what? As property owners, they can do what they want with it. They found that it didn't impact home affordability for the most part. They said that there are nuisance laws already on the books. So if you have people coming in and, and partying hard, call the cops and, yeah, you and can call the cops compl- on them. Right? Yeah, and they said, right. so everything that you're complaining about is dealt with in a law of some ways. And the other things that you're talking about, you know, affordable housing, it doesn't matter because somebody else owns that property and it's within their rights to do it. So if this is a jumping off point, if it goes any higher up, you know, obviously people in other cities can point to it and say, well, Austin did this or Texas did this. But if it gets appealed higher and higher, it'll create an even better case for those cities and communities who are fighting to have short-term rentals allowed. Let me share the strange connection to the United States, that wonderful document, the United States Constitution. This actually relates, believe it or not, listeners, it actually relates to the First Amendment. And uh, for those in 188 countries outside of the U.S. who are listening, you may or may not know that the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, the, the first 10 amendments are known as the Bill of Rights. That First Amendment, many people think, uh, is the most important amendment of all, and that is the right to free speech, freedom of religion. And part of free speech, there are lawyers who just specialize in this one amendment to the Constitution, literally First Amendment attorneys who build an entire career out of litigating just First Amendment cases. That's all they do. So it's a big deal. There's a lot to this. It may seem like if you read the text, it's really short, but there's a whole bunch of case law on this. I mean, it's all about the word speech. Yeah, right, right. And speech isn't just speech per se. We think of speech as what we're doing now, talking, but it's also freedom of expression, okay? And it is also the freedom to vacate your property, to discharge your ownership of something. Believe it or not, that actually relates to the First Amendment. If we've got uh, some scholars, professors, or of course, attorneys out there who would love to chime in on this, tell me if I'm right or wrong. Go to jasonhartman.com ask, We always love your comments on anything and everything or your questions, jasonhartman.com slash ask and tell us what you think. But yes, this is actually an issue that relates to the First Amendment, which is uh, one of the most prized rights that citizens have in the United States. And see, what's happening here is it's not another private party that is inhibiting your right to use your property 
the way you want to use it. It is the government. That's a whole nother genre when it's the government that is inhibiting your right to dispose of your property. In other words, to rent it on a short-term basis or a long-term basis. Now, interestingly, uh, the communist homeowners associations, uh, they seem to be getting away with this pretty successfully. But if you're not in a homeowners association and it's not a homeowners association rule, then it's pretty hard for just the government to create a restriction like this. An HOA, a homeowners association, they seem to be able to do it. So, yeah, well, for, you know, for whatever it's worth, that's an interesting <laughs> distinction. Yeah, it's kind of like the separation of powers between the states and the governments. Then you come in and it's the separation of power between the state and you the state HOA. state and federal government. <laughs> oh, well, okay, yeah, but you meant the state and the federal government. Yeah, initially, yeah, the state and federal government. Right, yeah. you know. Okay, interesting. So uh, it looks like the freedom to rent your property on a short-term basis for the time being is winning, but there's no guarantee it's going to stay that way. Yeah. We'll see. Well, All right. Put one in the what column for housing. Got? Yep. <laughs> for, or for personal property rights. Yeah, personal property really. rights, that okay. too. Yeah. But for those of our uh, clients who have purchased short-term rental properties either through our network or not, good news for you. For the time being. For yeah. the time being. Yeah. yeah. And I just want to say once again remember something. Commandment number 21 of my 10 commandments, <laughs> we're up to number 21 now, is thou shalt avoid manias. And there is a possibility, I'm not saying it's a surety, but it's a, certainly a possibility that the Airbnb thing is a bit of a mania, okay? Not completely, you know, there's, yeah, I think it's a great thing. I love the sharing economy. It's all good. But don't go overboard and don't make it your entire portfolio, okay? Diversify, diversify. Long-term rentals, the good, solid, proven thing, and maybe a couple of short-term rentals in your portfolio being maybe 20% short-term rentals. And just remember something. Airbnb has not been through a recession. Hear me again. Airbnb has yet to go through a recession. It has not happened yet. Airbnb is too new. It's like a cocky teenage kid that hasn't been out in the real world who thinks they know everything. So just a, a word of caution, a word to the wise there. All right, next up, Adam. Next up, you were talking about how Airbnb hasn't been through a recession. It may not go through one for a little bit longer. You posted an article on our Facebook group that the Venture Alliance members have access to about how there are some important data points showing strength in the housing market. So this is good news as we yes, head into sir. 2020, especially you have people like Janet Yellen saying, oh, 2020 might be rough and she might end up being right. But housing is looking very good for 2020. There were uh, new home sales says here had a 12-year high in September and October, despite a dip in October a little bit. So there's great news. New home sales in October were up almost a third seasonally. So, I mean, we're getting really good news. And the one that struck me the most that I shared with you before we started, Jason, was they said about two-thirds of October sales were units under construction or still to be built. Right, which means there's pre-demand here. Yeah. There's pre-demand. Yeah. And home starts or permits for new home construction hit a 12-year high as well. So homes mm -hmm. are finally getting built. 
Yeah, that's something. This economy is it's booming. I mean, there are certainly some signs of concern. I'll be the first to say that, but let me tell you, it's just amazing how the strength of, I hate to say it, the Trump economy. <laughs> okay, love him or hate him. He's good for the economy. He's a businessman. So, yeah, and it's yeah. possible. I mean, you have all these new home construction um, things going on. If they're not pre-sold, if the economy goes into a big recession in, or you know, even just a mild recession in 2020 or you know, into 2021, if these new homes get built and nobody can afford to buy them, that might be pretty good for us as investors if they're on the you know starter home side. It doesn't say how many were on the starter home side, but you know if those these homes get built and they can't sell them for what they thought they were going to be able to, they're going to have to lower the price. Well, there's always a strategy, of course, uh, you know, and that's the wonderful thing about income property. You can always adapt and you can make it work most of the time. There are very few times in an economic cycle where you can't make a strategy work. And since we're only talking audio here and we don't have the ability to show a visual, you know, you can just visualize a chart of a market. And of course, it has its peaks, its valleys, its ups, its downs. And, you know, it looks like a roller coaster, right? Those are the cyclical markets with the very pronounced highs and the the very ugly lows. And then there's the linear markets, the ones we like, which are very subtle highs and lows, but they still have their bumps. The thing that always kills people who don't follow commandment number five, that is thou shalt not gamble, okay? The thing that always kills those people is that they simply cannot wait out hard times. The hard times usually don't last longer than a year or two at worst. And if they're speculating, they have no life raft. You know, there's just no good way to make it through a storm. But if, if they've been investing versus speculating, then Adam, they're going to be in a much better position because the cash flow component of an investment is very reliable. The appreciation component is very unreliable. And history has proven that over and over again. So be a cash flow or a yield-oriented investor. To liken it to stocks, you would be a dividend investor. You would not be investing in non-dividend paying stocks. You would not be in precious metals. You would not be in anything speculative, cyclical market, real estate. That's just where people always, always, always get hurt. Yep. Couldn't agree more. Anything else or shall we go to Thomas? No, I think it's time to go into some wonkiness. Well, you know, before we get to the wonkiness, Adam, properties, we got to talk more about properties on the show. Do you have anything to say, like as an investment counselor, what say you on um, any of the properties you're seeing out there through our network? Well, we've started seeing some, I don't know if people have been looking, but there have been some new markets coming into play. I know yep. Aaron, my wife and I are under contract on one in... Um, Little Rock, Arkansas, where we're starting to get some new inventory there. And yeah, now so, Little Little Rock, of course, is not a new market for us. We've been in right. that market several years, but there hasn't been much inventory. Yeah. And we love Little Rock. The problem with it and why we don't talk about it very much, it's a very small market. Mm -hmm. So we already struggle to get good inventory in, in larger markets. So in a smaller market, there's really gonna, going to be limitations. But, but we're but getting a some little bit there. More there's, up, right? you know, yeah. 
newer LMS is coming on more in Florida. So I mean, just keep a lookout and talk to your investment counselor about where the new stuff is coming from, because there's some good stuff coming down the pipeline. And of course, new LMSs mean new local market specialists. That's what Adam's referring to. So that's great. And let's talk more about specific properties uh, later this week on some I'll come other ready shows, next Adam. time. Come ready. Come prepared. I want you to bring some actual properties people can buy. And, uh, and let's do that. All right. Without further ado, let's go to Thomas and talk about some economics. Thomas, interest rates in the news. So they were really low. Then they got a little higher in the past few months and got kind of a little higher. And now looks like we had another rate cut. What do you think? Oh, yeah. So you're talking about the federal funds rate. And just before going into the two things that I think will lead probably to higher mortgage rates in 2020, I think it's important to make a distinction between right what central bankers or the Federal Reserve, the right. European Central Bank. Those are the two big kings of finance, right? Absolutely. So, Thomas, this is good because people do not really know that the Fed does not control mortgage rates. The rate you pay on your mortgage when you hear the Fed is raising rates or lowering rates, they only indirectly influence the mortgage market. Tell us about that, if you would. Yeah, so if you go back to uh, 2015 and 2016, most traders in the market thought, hey, the Fed's starting to raise rates. They haven't been doing this for a long time. When they raise rates, mortgage rates should go up, right? But that's not what happened. The Federal Reserve started raising the short-term interest rate, known as the federal funds rate, and mortgage rates dropped. And the reason being is the Fed doesn't control the mortgage rates. The mortgage rates respond more to what expected inflation is going to be. Um, and the Fed can indirectly influence what the inflation will be, but not really. They don't have a whole lot of control over that. It's more macroeconomic factors that are beyond central banks' control, beyond policymakers' control. That's what the mortgage rate responds to. The two central bank factors that I was thinking of that may drive the mortgage rate higher in 2020, yeah. at least they'll put upward pressure on the mortgage rate. Right. And I just want to say, as I've said many times to the listeners, I absolutely suck at predicting interest rates. Uh, I have tried. I thought they'd be higher, you know, from many years ago. I thought that. And they should have been higher. I would have been right if we actually had a free market in, in this type of thing. But we don't. We have all these powers that be, if you will, that, you know, they don't follow the rules of supply and demand, inflation, all that kind of stuff. I don't know. You could disagree with me, Thomas, of course, but I, I just think that rates definitely should have been higher from a long time ago. They're just artificially low, in my opinion. But but you think they're going up next year. Why do you think that? I think mortgage rates are going up next year. And I, I think you're right. If you're talking about the federal funds rate. So back in 2014, the economy was doing really well. Well, really well is a relative term, right? Because the recovery was weak. But the economy was doing well enough to where the Fed could have started raising rates back in 2014. But they didn't. They waited even further. And I think that hesitancy to act has led us to what, where, we're at, where we're at now, where rates are still quite low. The federal fund rate, central bank interest rates is what I'm referring to. And they tried to get them up a little bit, but now they're coming right back down. I don't, 
I can't see at the current point where we're ever going to get away from low interest rates yeah. at the central bank level. It is. And, you know, this is what some call financial repression because those low interest rates really do hurt a lot of people, especially older people with savings that plan to live off the interest on that savings. Uh, and they just can't do it. So they're pushed into more risky investments and things that they really shouldn't be doing at their age. You know, they should be able to just ladder some CDs and keep it simple, but it's not the world we live in, sadly. So I don't know how we can ever see rates that are a lot, lot higher. We would have to have a real huge, huge inflationary concern to see, you know, rates into the 15%, 18% interest rates uh, like we had in the uh, Jimmy Carter era, or at least from the Jimmy Carter hangover. Reagan inherited a little bit of that. What do you think? I agree. I do think that in 2020, the conventional wisdom right now is that inflation's probably coming down because of slower economic growth. But my guess is the flip happens. Um, inflation is probably going to come back up. The economy right now is going through a mid-cycle slowdown. But my guess is inflation comes back. And there are two central bank forces that are going to push inflation back up. And the first is money printing. So in 2019, money printing took a breather. After years of lots of printing of money by central banks, right? It's called high power money. They just printed money out of nowhere. By saying printing money, meaning they pushed a computer key. It's not really printing. <laughs> From 2018 to 2019, the total money supply across the world probably dropped by around 315 billion. Say that again. By around 315 billion. In so what most, time most of from 2018 to what I'm expecting the final 2019 values will be. Okay, so in the course of a year, the money supply, global money supply, contracted by $315 billion, you say? Uh, that's what I'm expecting. That's not really that much, though, is it? I mean, and does that include, you know, they, we used to have M1, M2, M3. They took one of those away. But, you know, it's really, are you including the supply of credit in that? Or money, like what do you call the money supply? There are different ways to look at that, obviously. Yeah, you're referring to the formal definition of money supply, and that's right. I should refer to the formal. What I'm referring to when I'm saying money supply in this context is really central banks' balance sheets, which are basically, in the Federal Reserve's case, the treasury securities that the Federal Reserve holds. It holds other securities as well, but the vast majority of what the Federal Reserve owns on its balance sheet is treasury securities. So when I say the Fed's balance sheet will drop and central banks' balance sheets will drop across the globe by $315 billion, I'm referring to, say, the Federal Reserve's holdings of Treasury securities will drop from, say, $4 trillion to $3.8 trillion. Okay, so I just want to give, I always teach our listeners to ask themselves the question, compared to what? So if you compare that decline in money supply in terms of those central bank balance sheets around the world, it doesn't seem like that much to me because the global economy is somewhere around, you know, the GDP of the planet is somewhere around $60 trillion, trillion with a T. So $315 billion is like a third of a trillion. So I don't know. Is that that significant? I think it matters on the margins 
for mortgage rates Mm -hmm. because mortgage rates are responding to what it thinks inflation will be. And inflation responds to central bank purchases of government securities. So fair enough. Yeah, if the Fed's out there buying 10 year notes from the Treasury, that puts downward pressure on the yield of the 10 year note, which may in effect also affect the mortgage rates. Okay, got it. So, Thomas, the prediction is higher rates next year. That's very significant for real estate investors, obviously. Anything else you want to tell people before we wrap up today? Yeah, so central banks stopped expanding their balance sheets and actually saw their balance sheets decline in 2019 from 2018. That's probably going to reverse in 2020 to about a trillion more in balance sheet expansion. This has happened at the same time where central banks are lowering their short-term interest rates. So these two forces together put upward pressure on inflation. And Mm -hmm. I think these two forces are one of the reasons why the mortgage rate, you know, in early September, it was at 3.5%, the 30-year rate. And today it's around 3.8%. So that 30 basis point difference, a part of that is because markets are pricing in more central bank printing and lower short-term interest rates, both of which boost up inflation. Yep. Good to know. Thomas, thanks for joining us today. Yeah. Good to be with you. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Be sure to check out the show's specific website and our general website, hartmanmedia.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Remember that guest opinions are their own, and if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional. And we also very much appreciate you reviewing the show. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever platform you're using and write a review for the show. We would very much appreciate that. And be sure to make it official and subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode.